Welcome to Building Boston and Beyond. I am Lydia Rivera. This educational podcast provides residents with information on the economic growth of their community and the many resources and services available to improve their quality of life. From discussions with public officials, businesses, organizations, and people wanting to affect change, Building Boston and Beyond aims to further educate and empower residents to have a voice, connect with their community, and join the decision-making process. Joining us today is Bob Prince, a national leader in the transportation industry. Bob's transit career spans decades. The first African-American general manager of Boston's MBTA, Bob shaped a career spanning 25 years, first as a bus driver, then holding over 20 positions in between, rising to the role of overseeing America's first and oldest transit authority, the T. Bob is here today to share a little history of his career at the T and life thereafter, where he carved out his next chapter in life, holding corporate positions and seats on various boards, all while advocating a level playing field for minorities in the transportation industry. Bob also shares his 25-year trip from bus garage to boardroom in his book titled, Every Man, Footprints in the Snow. Let's hear more from Bob. Thank you for joining us today, Bob. Let's begin with your days at the T, like including your first job as a bus driver out of Quincy, rising up through the various positions that you had. And we only have an hour? (laughs) (laughs) The first times at the T coming in as an operator um, was interesting because it was in a time of, of busing. And of all the places for me to go, I went to Quincy um, where people were trying to escape uh, busing, I was the first thing they saw. And it wasn't exactly pleasant all the time at, at that time. But um, as luck would have it, the, the red line opened up and we were able to bid down and I became a collector and, and I was a guard on the trains and ended up uh, a motorman on the blue line. Mm-hmm. And then we just kept moving. I mean, 20 jobs from, from that time frame uh, on the way up to GM, some of them going sideways. But all the time, you know, I wasn't looking for to become general manager. That wasn't, that wasn't the plan. Um, I was just happy with the opportunity that the T provided. Right, exactly. You have a great story from when you first started, um, the Blizzard of 78 story. Can you, can you share that? Well, uh, I had been two years at the at the authority, and and we had the blizzard of '78, which is when we were put into martial law, and that meant that nobody could be on the roads except transit workers and emergency personnel and the like. And I'd called in and said I'd be in into work that day, and when I got ready to pull my car out, I lived in Brookline at the time. I was met by a, a national guardsman, and he said, uh, "Where are you going?" And I was I said, "I'm in uniform. I'm going to work." I said, I work for the T. And he said, nope, yeah, you're not driving that car. And I said, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm okay to do this. He said, I don't care if you're Mary Poppins, put the car back. So <laughs> even back then, I was smart enough not to argue with a person who carried a loaded M16. So I put the car back. But I had already made a commitment to, to go to work. So I walked. Ordinarily, on a bright, sunshiny day, it would have probably taken me about an hour and a half, maybe two hours to get to Quincy. 
Um, it took me six hours in, in a blizzard. Oh my God. That story went around the T is, you know, uh, I don't know whether it was positive or negative, but it was like, who, this fruitcake at least, <laughs> at least he's a man of his word. If he said he's gonna do something, he's gonna do something. And that was my mantra from that point forward. That brings me to um, another topic. Just saying that just you were talking about your commitment to the tea and especially with that story. You've always taken that commitment to the tea, you know, your day job, but you've always uh, given back to the community outside of the tea on the weekends at night. Your passion for community, giving back to society by supporting organizations like Compto, the Conference of Minority Transportation Officials, APTA. You found the time throughout your life to, to be a big brother. Why is this so important to you? And why is it important for society to adopt that type of uh, commitment? I've been blessed, and I felt as though it was my duty to to give back to the community that did right by me. You know, my parents brought me up correctly. I was an only child. I don't follow the only child syndrome. Uh, I do like to give back. And so I remember with Ray Diggs and I would do the Boston shootout. We did that for almost 20 years. I teach classes for Eno and I teach classes for APTA. I try to look at the fact that you always got to prepare to bring somebody up alongside you, to mentor the, the next generation. You know, I'm not that selfish. I, I was blessed to get to where I was and I'm given a platform to be able to discuss this with people and to bring along that the next wave of transportation leaders is important. Yes, and you've mentored so many young people that have risen to fabulous careers throughout your life. Yeah, we got a couple of GMs in there. You know, we got Mike Oglesby, who's in Detroit. We got Rick Leary, he's up in, in Toronto. Mm -hmm. There's no place you can't go in, in the country and, and not run into somebody who came through the MBTA. If you can survive here in Massachusetts, you can survive anywhere. Exactly. Let's talk about your book, Every Man. I mean, you have a great story to tell. You really do. You point to specifics milestones that you achieved, hurdles you faced, race relations citywide, and within the authority. Why did you find telling your story in this manner through every man so important? Well, you know, it was funny. The genesis of the book was the fact that we're, we're both overachievers. So on the weekends, she did GEDs. And the person who ran that program uh, was named Jim Hughes. And I said, gee, you know, my, my uh, grammar school principal was named Jim Hughes. Can't be the same guy. And it turned out to be the same person. So I went to see him and I, I was all excited and everything. And, and, you know, not thinking that I'm an adult now, I asked him if he remembered me. And he said, you know, he remembered the class, but he didn't remember me specifically because so, so much time had passed. So I went to educators that I knew and I said, hey, you know, who do you remember when you um, went to school? They said, it's easy. He said, you remember the four pointers, you remember the star athletes, and you remember the troublemakers. All right. I said, well, what about the folks who just kind of passed through? They said, they just go through. They don't give us any trouble. We don't even think about them. So I said, I went to the library and went looking for books on, on, the, on the every man, every, everyday people, everyday women, everyday people who just go to work every day, put clothes on their back, put the kids through college and school and whatever. And there just were no stories like that. So I said, well, you know something? Um, it's time to write. I, it was cathartic for me. I wasn't looking to make money. I just looked for the fact that I hope that people who read this story, it's a short story, it's 80 pages, you can read in the shower. Everybody has, has a story and it, it's your legacy. And you know, your parents and your friends and your kids know that you go to work every day, but they have no idea about the trials and tribulations that you go through on a regular basis and how you got here. And I thought that that would be helpful 
for people to say, you know, if this guy can write a story, I got a great story. Yeah, it is. It is a great story. And when you reference the MBTA, the culture, you reference the, the culture of the MBTA, even during your tenure, the 70s to the 2000s, there existed an embedded culture, you know, fostered over the years, which was difficult, resisted. And to hear it's always been done this way is the type of response you would get from the workforce. Where, what are your thoughts on the ways to break, break through um, that embedded culture? <laughs> I'll tell you something, Lydia. If, if I can figure that out totally, I want the Nobel Peace Prize. Changing a culture is like trying to turn a ship one degree at a time. You can't turn it too quickly or you'll capsize. Culture change is not something that happens overnight. It, we didn't get to this section this way. It's like having cancer. You know, I, I can't cure it if I don't know I got it. Well, now we know we got it. You know, if I thank President Trump for anything, he took the covers off of the United States and showed us for who we really are. And that's okay because, you know something, we need to move forward. We need to be able to adjust and change the culture so that it's good for all Americans. And so I think that, you know, we're moving in the right direction and culture change is just part of the, part of the history of the country. When you talk about inclusion and the popularity of diversity and inclusion right now, we discussed uh, before the show that you just hope it's just not a one and done and it's the flavor of the month. Let's talk more about that. Well, you know, I, I've seen this movie before, and it's a horror movie. You know, first the meetings are everybody's hot to trot, and it's and it's everybody wants to hire a diversity inclusion person, and and we're going to have meetings every other week, and then we have meetings uh, once a once once a quarter, and then we have meetings every six months, and then all of a sudden it just disappears. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see that happen, and I think that given all of the issues that have happened over this past year with Black Lives Matter, with the death of George Floyd, you, you see a different thought process. And I think that it's going to change and people are not going to let it slip back into mediocrity. And right now, too, I mean, you are semi-retired. You, you still contribute. Right now, you have been tapped to assist organizations with their diversity and inclusion. Do you feel that there's really a lot of work to be done out there? Hey, Lydia, there's a ton of work to be done out there. Diversity and inclusion got to be driven down from the top. It doesn't work uh, from the middle or from the bottom. It works from the top down. But the resistance comes from the middle because the middle says, hey, I've seen this movie before. You know something? We'll outlast it. It'll go away like it always does. Mm -hmm. And it's up to the top to make sure that they put goals in place so that this is, becomes a fabric uh, of, the, of the organization, no matter what organization you're in, whether it's the public side or the private side, the issue is still the same. Because on the private side, appreciating the fact that putting DBEs or historically underutilized businesses, bringing them in and bringing them to the table, because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And you wanna make sure that you know, they understand the community and the community needs. And not having them there and, and appreciating the culture that they, they bring to the table mm -hmm. is a great loss. The better the diversity of the company, the more successful the company. Right. And you've always said a major principle, a key factor is listening and huh. communicating. Listening is the lost art, Lydia. People do a lot of talking, but they don't listen. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be the person at the table pounding it and, and, and giving their opinion. 
um, sometimes you got to step back and you got to listen. And I think a, a key to a good manager is a person who does just listen. Right, right. So this is a question I've been looking forward to asking you is, if you were given the opportunity to build the transit agency from scratch, what are three processes or approaches would you include in that project? First thinking, of course, your career when you were a young man starting at the T and everything along the way that you experienced up till now, post MBTA, where you had a number of mini careers after the T. How would you build that entity? First and foremost, I'd be looking at community. If you don't bring the community to the table and ask them what they need, um, instead of like most consultants telling them what they need, <laughs> uh, I think that once you establish that rapport and you, then you've got to look, you know, legislatively for funding and what have you, and, and the nuts and bolts then become but first and foremost, you've got to deal with the community. You've got to make sure that what you're doing is not destroying the community, that it's going to enhance the community. Right. The public has clearly become smarter with engagement. We talk about every, every organization needs to do a better job on, with the community and sharing what they're up to and why this type of investment, where their talk, tax dollars are going. I, even myself, from experience on projects, the public tends to be more involved and more educated. That's been, I guess you say, a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, um, I think it's a blessing because the fact that I, I give you the, the disabled community, for example. You know, people used to say to myself and Michael, you know, why are you meeting all the time with with Ben Haynes and, and the disability group. <laughs> I said, because I don't want them chaining themselves in my buses. They need to understand what my limitations are. When you explain that to people, people get it and they understand and they, they can prioritize what they need and what they can step back on because they know what, what, you, what you've got under the, under the belt. But if you don't bring them to the table and explain it to them, then they're going to go off on their own vent and say, you know, the the T's non-responsive, they don't want to be, they don't want to listen to us and whatever, and it becomes hostile. I wasn't looking for hostility, I was looking for help. You know, I, I wanted to build a coalition um, so that people felt, you know, that they could come and talk to me. I had a young group of, of individuals, uh, young kids came to make a presentation to me about the, the, the their past system was the fact that the past shut off uh, for school children at five o'clock. But a lot of them had extra activities that went on until six or seven o'clock at night, and they couldn't get home without paying the fare. And they came in and were ready for an argument. They brought a very cogent case to me, and, and I said, you know, you make good sense. Let's change it. It's listening to the people that, uh, and, and making change where change is, is beneficial for all, because now they felt a sense of community that they could come to the general manager and, and voice their issue and get a result. Right, right. Obviously, we've had a difficult uh, 14 months uh, with COVID. And uh, um, you were a former general manager and you understand uh, public transportation. You clearly understand the decline in ridership has impacted the entire country and transit agencies. What are your thoughts on bouncing back with ridership? People keep saying, well, when we go back to normal, <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to see what we saw before as normal. The new normal will be, I don't think you'll see a rush hour anymore. I think that businesses 
have realized that they save a lot of overhead by not having the persons come into work in the office. So they may work two days or three days in the office and the rest of the time at home, at home and virtually. Um, so therefore it doesn't, it cuts down on the service. So you need to start running, I think, flat service, whereas there's no peak. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's every 15 minutes and that's what it is or whatever the number is. Because I don't think you're gonna see people riding it in the same manner that they were before. Before it was, I had to get on the the, the, the bus or the train at seven o'clock because I got to be at work by eight. Well, not necessarily is that the case anymore. And I don't think that will be the case. They can stay at home and probably come in at noon. You know, so you, you, you got to start to look at what the travel, the traffic patterns are going to be. I, I applaud the next wave of transportation leaders because they get to write the playbook now. You know, they can't go down and say it's always been that way and this is how we do it because <laughs> we've never done this before. So this is a, it's a whole new game. Well, just overall right now, if you just want to share a little of what you're doing, we talked a little about it um, earlier. Right now you are. Let's talk. I know you're retired, but you're not because you're always moving and you're always looking to help people. And um, and obviously keep yourself busy. So right now you're um, what are you doing? Well, I keep my finger in the in the pie, so to speak. Um, I do a lot of what I would call personal, you know, one-on-ones with general managers or people who want to become general managers. That's great. You don't want to say no. I mean, I'm I'm not dead. Um, I'll be 72 in July, but but it's like um, you, you stay connected because people call you and ask, and it's not about the money. It's just about um, making sure that that you give good advice, you know. And I try to do that. I want to thank Bob Prince for joining this edition of Building Boston and Beyond. To learn more about his book, Every Man Footprints in the Snow, go to footprints.net. That's F-O-O-T-P-R-I-N-C-E dot net. Visit buildingbostonandbeyond.com to get a glimpse of our future guests and the many ways you can follow us on social media. Join us next time to hear the latest topics of discussion in Boston and beyond. 